0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com/slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hello, I'm Kenneth Couquier, Senior Editor. You're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. The world's fish populations are in decline, and part of the problem is modern technology. It allows us to fish in more and more remote areas of the oceans. So places that were once fish sanctuaries are no longer safe havens.
2: The ocean is the largest source of food in the world.
1: But fishes are more and more frequently returning home with empty nets. Researchers are thinking of better ways to monitor our oceans with drones and satellites. More about that later in the show. The clip was from the Ocean 2012 project by the Pew Charitable Trust. First, in olden times, if soldiers attacking a castle couldn't breach its defenses, they turned to a darker tactic of starving out their opponents. A similar strategy has long seemed viable for fighting cancer. Researchers know it's possible to weaken cancer tumors by starving them and make them more susceptible to cancer drugs. The problem is it is a hard treatment for patients, and it means the patient's immune system also gets weak. But a new study has found a way of sneaking nutrients into the healthy cells. With me on the line to discuss the new research is Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent. Hello, Matt. Hi, I So, Matt, let's start with the basics. The idea of starving a cancer tumor has been around for a while. Why has it taken so long to develop a viable
2: way to do it? The researchers in 2012, this very team that's actually behind this new research, demonstrated in mice that when you starve them for a number of days... You're able to starve the tumor because tumors are just to fuel their twisted growth, they're desperate to get that sugar and that protein to to replicate out of control, and if you deny them that sugar and that protein, they just can't do it, and so they start to shrink and researchers demonstrated that you know using that technique in combination with some cancer drugs, was able to knock the cancer's down to 80% of their original size. And it was kind of a double whammy because you're simultaneously denying the cancer the fuel it needs while throwing a drug at it that can hamper its growth. And that's really useful. But the thing that the researchers realized they were missing was your own immune system does a great job of going after cancer cells. But when you starve your immune system... The specific cells that go after tumors are called tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes, or TILs. These cells really get hampered as well. And so they were thinking, well, wouldn't it be better if we could also get them nutrients to do their job while the cancer drug is circulating and the tumor cells are suffering? So what did the scientists do? They crafted this diet that was made up of effectively one-tenth the number of calories that the mice would normally get. And crucially, in that very, very meager diet, the mice were getting almost no sugar and almost no protein that the cancers could make use of But the diet was also composed of these essential fatty acids and vitamins that are are really critical for lymphocyte function inside the body so that the immune system can actually do its job
1: while the body's being starved. Now, the research was on breast cancer cells. Do we have any evidence that it works with other sorts of cancers as well? Yeah, you bet. The researchers actually, in line with
2: this breast cancer work, ran a simultaneous study with melanoma, uh, skin cancer and they found almost identical results, which is really encouraging when you think about it, because it means that this is not just specific to breast cancer. We have the potential for this to be quite usable across a wide range of cancers.
1: That's right. Although the, the win here was that we shrunk the size of the tumor, but we didn't affect, as far as I understand, the potency or the capacity for the tumor to spread. So it didn't rid the cancer from the body. The tumor is still there. Is that a limitation to the effectiveness of this approach? Well, a lot of cancer studies actually look
2: at tumor shrinkage. They ask the question, you know, we we administered this drug, we tried this tactic, and we monitored the size of the tumors over 40 days or 50 days. In this case, it was 42 days. And they measure their success, particularly in mice, by collecting the tumor at the end of the study and measuring it to see whether or not how big it is compared to mice that were fed the normal diet the entire time as a control, or mice that were only put on cancer drugs and not put on the near-fasting diet. And they got phenomenal results because when you look at this stuff, the tumor size in the mice that were on the combination diet was dramatically smaller than the tumor size of the mice that were on just the drugs or just on the special diet. So how soon might this be available to humans? That's the encouraging bit, actually, because uh, Walter Longo at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles has already collaborated with the Mayo Clinic, and they've got human trials I- b- being run with this right now. So we're going to see it real soon. I mean, assuming that everyone does well, I think it's only a matter of a few years before we start seeing folks being put on a limiting diet, while they're being given drugs like doxorubicin to treat their cancers. Especially when you see results like this, it's just, it's a no-brainer.
1: That sounds great. Thanks a lot, Matt. No problem. Next, researchers are getting better at teaching skills to robots. But sometimes researchers don't have the hardware to test if a certain skill set will be useful for a robot to do. For example, to become better at fetching a coffee. Different skills are called modalities. Sight could be a modality, or hearing if we're talking from a human point of view.
0: If you want the robot to be able to pick up your cup of coffee and put it in the dishwasher or bring it over to you if you're a disabled person, it has to figure out exactly where it is and and how it might grab it and not spill the coffee and not, you know, put its robot hand inside the coffee because that wouldn't make you happy or it happy, perhaps. And so the additional modality of being able to sense depth is very useful So that it gets it just right. It doesn't miss by a few inches or or, or centimeters. But the traditional systems that we've trained often uh, don't have enough data to learn all the different modalities.
1: That was Professor Trevor Darrell of the University of California in Berkeley. He and his team have come up with an algorithm that can create a hallucination of how a certain modality may take place. Now, a robot hallucination is not the kind that a human being has. A hallucination in that context is a representation of a modality that the robot lacks. So, for instance, if we've trained a robot to fetch my coffee mug using radar, but it doesn't have radar at this particular moment because the radar is broken, it could, quote-unquote, hallucinate what the radar signal would be if the radar was working and still perform its function.
0: The more modalities you have, the more accurate the system can often be. But there's sort of a bit of the rub here, which is you'd like to use lots of modalities because you can add extra sensors to your robot or your car, uh, or you might have them in your laboratory, but you might not have them out in the field, or each car might have a slightly different set of sensors. So the paper that that we recently reported at the CVPR conference was putting forward this idea of how you might be able to Uh, train or use a system with missing modalities. What happens when you don't have that radar in your lab, but you have it out in the field, or vice versa? And the paper that Judy Hoffman and Saurabh Gupta and myself wrote expressed this notion of modality hallucination, so that you might be able to train the system to imagine what the modalities that you don't have looks like, so you can still try and make use of it.
1: So now even robots have hallucinations. Clearly research coming from Berkeley. If you have any hallucinations of your own or want to add something about this week's show, please find us on Facebook or Twitter. You can tweet us directly at Economist Radio or email us at radio at On last week's show, we discussed how to test self-driving cars without putting human lives at risk. One listener commented, It is insane that people are being allowed to use these cars these self-driving cars should first be 100% secure. Gary Sandbrook wrote, Shouldn't self-driving cars be able to test themselves? If you want to comment on this week's show, please share your thoughts with us on social media. Better mapping technology and large trawlers are letting us fish in more remote areas than ever before. These are areas beyond national jurisdiction, the high seas. This is hurting fish populations that are already in decline. But could technology help us improve how we monitor the high seas and illegal fishing grounds? With me to dive into the topic is Miranda Johnson, our environmental correspondent. Miranda, first
3: tell us, how much of a problem is overfishing in the high seas? It's a difficult question to answer initially because one of the problems um, about looking after fish stocks out there is the fact that data are very patchy. And certain species, you know, we keep better track of because they're more valuable, such as tuna and marlin and others. We don't really know what is going on or there are areas of the ocean where we don't really know what's going on. But insofar as we've got information on these more valuable species, scientists estimate that about Two thirds of fish stocks on the high seas are overexploited, which means that they are fish beyond sustainable limits. You know, the way we're carrying on now in future generations, those stocks won't be there. So this is
1: actually a disaster. But technology is a part of the problem because now ships are going to places where they just couldn't in the past.
3: Absolutely. It's a problem insofar as back um, even perhaps four four decades ago, the high seas, which cover about 58% of the ocean, were a sort of refuge for fish insofar as they were more than 200 nautical miles off countries' coasts and so therefore were beyond national jurisdiction. And people didn't bother because, you know, storms, waves, a very dangerous enterprise. But insofar as we've started being able to build, you know, bigger boats with better freezers. Since mainly the late 1970s through the 80s and 90s, and we've had better mapping capability, it means that it has been increasingly worthwhile for certain fishermen to make their way out there. And when I say certain fishermen, what I really mean is often fishermen from rich countries, which are able to pay out fishing subsidies to help Cover the costs of fuel, which are very high, to kind of chug out that far.
1: So, what can we do about this?
3: So, one of the bold suggestions made by certain fisheries economists and others is we should close areas beyond national jurisdiction. We should close the high seas to fishing altogether. And some estimates suggest that could boost stocks by 150%. That would require an enormous amount of international consensus and agreement, which may not happen, unfortunately. So, in the meantime, we could boost the share of areas that are protected and where fishing is not allowed perhaps to 30 percent and to enforce those areas and keep them kind of fishing free we could use the developments in satellite technology and also increasingly sailing drones could be used to if not to prevent people from fishing in those protected areas illegally at least to identify them.
1: So there's a lot of good technology to bring to bear, but what are the shortcomings with the state of technology?
3: So satellites, if you are using them to try and identify a a vessel in a place that it shouldn't be, uh, are all well and good if they're in the right place at the right time, but uh, that is not always the case, and you know perhaps they pass over only on a kind of weekly basis. So there's uh, no certainty that you'll you'll get the illegal fishers where you want them. And indeed, the kind of satellites that are being used to identify rogue fishing vessels are not. You know, these are not James Bond style zoom in a thousandfold, and you know you can see the very papers that people on deck are reading. It's it's not as good as that. Which I think actually is why some interesting partnerships between the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and certain small companies, sail drone I'm thinking of in particular, which are looking into these sailing robots and sort of using them actually not only to kind of photograph vessels in areas they shouldn't be, uh, because these sailing drones can be left on the ocean for months at a time, they're very hardy, but they can also conduct quite important scientific research such as measuring ocean changes in ocean temperature. um, So kind of conducting other useful work. And the model is that they will be leased out to perhaps scientific bodies that want to use them. So also, you know, trying to keep costs down too. And there are also some interesting developments actually with net technology itself. There's a group called uh, Safety Net Technologies, which essentially, as I understand it, they kind of in build within fishing nets, small rings, escape rings, which can be lit up or not, depending on quite how you want to sort of stimulate fish. But these escape rings allow juvenile fish potentially to get out of nets so that they are not caught up, so that they can go away, breed, grow to full size, because you, I think you are seeing such a toll being taken on fish stocks in part because these smaller fish do not have time to develop and mature properly and therefore spawn themselves. So that is also something that actually potentially more commercial fishing bodies could look into having smarter net technology.
1: Thank you, Miranda. That's all for this week's episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read Miranda's piece on fishing on the high seas and Matt's articles on starving cancer tumors, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist. I'm Kenneth Couquier in London,